Welcome, 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 everybody. This is Islam for Christians, episode 50, the Quran, Surah 104, Al-Humaza, the traducer. Woe unto every slandering traducer who hath gathered wealth of this world and arranged it. He thinketh that his wealth will render him immortal. Nay, but verily he will be flung to the consuming one. Ah, what will convey unto thee what the consuming one is? It is the fire of Allah, kindled, which leapeth up over the hearts of men. Lo, it is closed in on them, in outstretched columns. That was the Marmaduke Pickthall translation, and now the Arabic, as recited by Saad Al-Ghamdi. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ويل لكل همزة لمزة الذي جمع مالا وعدده يحسب أن ماله أخلده كلا لينبذن في الحطمة this is an early Meccan surah, probably in the third year of Muhammad's ministry. And that was right around the time when he was beginning to actually preach in public, uh, to come out, so to speak. And many of his early proclamations were apocalyptic warnings of the consequences of normal life in Mecca. And full disclosure here, these are my absolute favorites. I love these types of surahs. You know, how many ways can you describe the indescribable torment of hell? or the unrestrained power of God on the day of judgment, or what the universe will be like when the sun supernovas and the earth becomes nothing but another scattered mess of random atoms. And this is certainly one of those surahs, and one with some obvious Christian parallels, and we'll get to those a bit later. But first, I want to make sure that the basic words of this surah are actually being understood. So first of all, what's up with that title? And what is a traducer? If you don't know that word, that just puts you with 99% of the English-speaking community. Um, if English is your second language, just don't feel badly about not knowing this one. I'm a native speaker, and I have a pretty decent vocabulary. And I had no idea what that meant when I first saw it. And it's not its not one of those strange words that you only see in theological circles that no one else uses, like eschatology or concupiscence. A theology degree will not be of much use to you with this word. This is a strange word for everyone. A few years back, uh, when Donald Trump was the president of the United States, uh, he was really, really getting into it with the leader of North Korea. And for a couple months or a couple weeks, I don't remember exactly, 
he and Kim Jong-un were just slinging insults back and forth. And during one of these exchanges, the North Korean translators called Donald Trump a dotard or dotard, D-O-T-A-R-D. I actually don't know how to pronounce that. It's just not a word used in modern English. It was such a strange choice. And upon hearing this, what did the entire English-speaking world do? We all went right to a dictionary to find out what a dotard is. Now, back to traducer. It's kind of like that. It's a similar type of word in English. Um, it's just not something that really <laughs> is used ever in, in casual or really even like academic or any conversation at all, which is probably why you've never heard it. But so you know, here's the dictionary definition of the verbal root of the English word traducer, which means to traduce means to expose to shame or blame by means of falsehood and misrepresentation. So I'll say that one more time. To expose to shame or blame by means of falsehood and misrepresentation. Now, even if you're translating a holy text, it does take some guts to use a word that nobody really knows. Now, maybe that wasn't the case in Pickthall's day. I don't know how exactly people talked a hundred years ago when this was done. But in our day, right now, the Arabic word that Pickthall translates as traducer is more commonly translated as backbiter or slanderer scandalmonger, scorner, mocker. Among those words, slanderer is probably the closest to traducer. So why use the word traducer, or slandering traducer, as Pickthall does? Based on the Arabic, you basically need to find two descriptions which mean almost the same thing, and then smash them together. Because in the Arabic, it's a two-word double insult. And really, those just happen to be the best-fitting English words that were available. They both mean to damage someone's reputation and shame them publicly. You know, but the other ones just don't quite mean the same thing, even though they do make sense to a modern reader, more sense to a modern reader. And again... I want to caution everyone, there's no such thing as a bad translation. So please remember that. These are all valuable, particularly among the great, almost canonical translations into English. They're just different tools for different occasions and different types of people and different points of emphasis. So, back to the double insult here. What is that double insult in Arabic? It's two nouns in sequence that sound similar and rhyme. Humazat, lumazat. Humazat, lumazat. Now, when you see this construction in Arabic, two nouns like that that are both either definite or indefinite articles, these are both indefinite, it's tying two words into a single descriptive concept, much like in English. In a similar, but slightly different. 
the first of those words is humazat. Humazat is often translated as backbiter or slanderer. And it comes from a verb meaning to prick, to prod, to egg on, or to spur a horse. You know, you get the idea. Someone who is a humazat is not just someone who likes to lie and spread false rumors. It's someone who does it relentlessly and with a purpose. And that purpose is to elicit a reaction. Like when you give a horse the spurs, that's what a humazat is doing to a person. They're hitting them with spurs to see if they can make them run or do whatever. So that's humazat. And then combine it with the second word, lumazat. A lumazat is someone who finds fault in everything. You know, you could almost call it a, a petty critic. That that person looking for the speck of dust in everyone's eye. Now, the term lumazat is a broader word than humazat. And from my understanding, a lumazat is all the things I just mentioned, but without the same sort of incendiary, prodding, relentless quality. Not that that's good, you know, they're both annoying, but lumazat comes from a straightforward, less poetic verb that means to give a wink, to speak ill, to criticize. So it's more of a general form of annoying person. So in the Arabic, you have two words that are basically the same, but slightly different, and then put together for emphasis. Humazat, lumazat. Slanderer, traducer. Slandering, traducer. Now, admittedly, you just can't beat the Arabic on that one. Let's go ahead and put humazat, lumazat into your everyday vocabulary. You know, now I have, and I'm sure many of you have known, Many, many humazat lumazats. And that term really seems to better reflect the rage that they can create in you. You know, or as they're pronounced in the Quran together, in what I assume is the proper Arabic syntax here, humazat ilumazat. Here's the Saad al Gamdi version of that. Okay, so now that you know what all those words mean, let me just read the surah again. Woe unto every slandering traducer who hath gathered wealth of this world and arranged it. He thinketh that his wealth will render him immortal. Nay, but verily he will be flung to the consuming one. Ah, what will convey unto thee what the consuming one is? It is the fire of Allah kindled, which leapeth up over the hearts of men. Lo, it is closed in on them in outstretched columns. There's one other term I want to clarify here, and it's from line four. Verily, he will be flung to the consuming one. So what is the consuming one? Like so many things in the Quran, the consuming one, it's a poetic term. It defies easy description. But you should know that the Pickthall translation of this is an outlier, which is another reason why I mentioned this. 
Now, it's perhaps because he came from a Christian culture. You know, the term consuming one just really, really sounds like a sort of Christian Dante-like description of hell. Now, in this case, I'm not really sure where he got consuming one and what his reason was for choosing that. The word in question, al-hutamah, it doesn't really mean consuming in the way that I would have traditionally understood it. Because to consume th- something is, is to take it in, to destroy it and turn it into something else. That's what happens like when you eat, when you consume a piece of food. You're taking it in, you're destroying it, and you're turning it into something else or several things. And I suppose that does work on a very poetic, spiritual level if you think about it. Because someone can be destroyed and turned into something else, either with a good result or a bad result. You know, and God can be the one doing the destroying, and that can be good, and that can be bad. You know, that's also what the whole day of judgment is from a certain point of view. But this word that is used in Arabic, it has much more to do with breaking something into pieces than consuming it or crushing it. You know, breaking something is not the same as changing something. The more common translation of uh, al-hatama is the crusher. Al-hatama is a noun form of a verb that means breaking into pieces. And it applies to pretty much everything. So this verb is usually seen in the words for, say, even today, a plane crash, a demolition, Shards of glass, um, anything you can think of that has been broken or shredded into little pieces. Um, I didn't see confetti anywhere, but yeah, maybe. You know, something like that. Even splitting an atom comes from this verb. So you can think of this crusher in terms of what it will do to a person, either physically or spiritually, and even in a positive way. You know, like putting your ego into the Al-Hatama. But it can also mean the destruction of, for example, all the worldly things that you love so much that you raise them to a religious level of worship. Al-Hatama will shred your money. You know, not that the ancients had paper money, but in terms they'd understand, it can break down your gold shatter your precious gems, and so on. This is a feature of many of the early surahs. You just see so many things like this. It's an attempt to describe the indescribable, to put some kind of word that can describe the utter annihilation and indescribable power of of the hellfire that Muhammad is envisioning. You know, how can you describe the otherworldly with the words of the world? This is an attempt, and it certainly isn't the only one. What word can you use for a force that is singularly destructive, a force that is overwhelming and terrifying and stronger than anything you can imagine? In cosmic terms, 
how would you describe what it is like to be sucked into a black hole or to be in a star as its supernovas? You know, maybe that's why Pickthall used the term consuming one. Now, here's the Sura again, but with a more modern reading, complete with the crusher description. Just see how different this sounds. This is the Mustafa Khattab translation. Woe to every backbiter, slanderer, who amasses wealth greedily and counts it repeatedly, thinking that their wealth will make them immortal. Not at all. Such a person will certainly be tossed into the crusher. And what will, what will make you realize what the crusher is? It is Allah's kindled fire, which rages over the hearts. It will be sealed over them, tightly secured with long braces. The thing is about this surah, it's not just about al-Hatma in the afterlife either. You know, it is, but there is an earthly meaning here too, a more immediate meaning here too. This works even without the, without the conception of an afterlife. Just think of the things being described here. Slander, gossip, hoarding of money. These are the things that smash an earthly society apart as well. Slander is a form of lying, which basically undermines all the other virtues, and thus undermines a society. For example, think of a panhandler on the street. Now, assume that this person is telling lies about his misfortunes and exaggerating his situation. Think about what that undermines. It makes a person cynical about charity, less likely to give, and, and really for a good reason. You know, it'll cause a person to take a cynical, negative view of the poor. And just think about how destructive that is. Think of the positive emotion that that lie is destroying. Lies we tell for personal gain can reverberate way beyond that one isolated situation. And eventually, lies can just make it impossible for anyone who is actually telling the truth and really needs help. You know, someone who is truly poor, who truly needs help. And this all leads to a low-trust society. And there are so many pathologies that go with living in a low-trust society. I should know. I have lived in several large American cities. And those places are as close to the bottom of a low-trust society as you can get. And if you live there long enough, even for a couple of years, depending on where you are and what your situation is, it can really, really change you. Well, it changes normal people, at least. You know, those of us who are not saints. Because you learn to harden your heart. Because if you don't, someone's going to put a bullet through it. Now, since we're talking about things that undermine the heart, I should also point out that this Sora does take aim at the worship of money the placing of religious significance on money. 
as if money will shield you from God or allow you to live forever? Or do you any good when your bones are raised and Allah is calling you to account? Now, for the Christians listening, this is familiar. The New Testament makes the exact same criticism, as I'm sure most of you know. Now, even in secular Western culture, there is kind of a famous concept, which is money is the root of all evil. Now, this concept, by saying this concept is famous, you know, I mean that everyone knows it, not that everyone actually believes it. Now, that sentiment comes directly from the later New Testament epistles, specifically Paul's letter to Timothy. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9-10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Or, as Jesus put it in Matthew, uh, this is 6.24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And it's not just the part about money that is probably going to seem familiar to any of the Christians listening here. You may have noticed that this is a very sort of gospel-y Sora. I can see Jesus saying this entire thing, and it wouldn't be at all out of character. So I thought I'd rewrite it, you know, in a sort of modern biblical English. And in modern biblical English, this surah would probably sound something like this. Woe to the hypocrites who store their wealth on earth, thinking that it will buy the kingdom of heaven. But they will not travel half so far and will be thrown into the fire. And what is Gehenna? What is the fire? It is the justice of God, which sees the hearts of men and condemns those hearts among weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many Christians, particularly English-speaking ones, the term weeping and gnashing of teeth is something that is instantly recognizable. It's all over the English translations of the gospel, and it's describing those who have been cast away from God those in the fiery furnace, those who are removed from the grace of God, or, more simply, it's hell. And the last two lines of this surah are the Islamic version of all of that. The hellfire is closed in on them in outstretched columns. In other words, they've been completely overcome and inundated with despair. You know, when the wicked realize their punishment, or alternately, alternately, when the guilty hearts realize with regret the foolishness of what they have done. And that's a key part of this surah, and many early surahs like it. 
it isn't just a warning about the coming hellfire in the afterlife. I mean, it is about that, but there's still an earthly level to this warning too. Living life with God doesn't just mean taking in an earthly pain for a later reward. Now, it can be, and it sometimes is, but I think most people, a lot of people, will also tell you that a godly life, if only on earth, is also its own reward. You know, right here, right now, in the present, on earth. Now, some of us have been fortunate enough, or unfortunate enough, depending on your perspective, you know, we have taken this entire journey right here on earth already, you know, from God's presence down into the crusher and back into God's presence again. You know, for those who were once near to God and then traveled very, very far from God and then somehow found their way back, that person can attest to what it's like to encounter the consuming one or the crusher, and to have encountered this force and then be pulled back, you know, almost like a jumper on a bungee cord, you know, and thankfully you were pulled back before you hit the water or the pavement or whatever was at the bottom of this fall, you know, and you also realize that the most important thing was that that bungee cord was tied to something very, very important, um, be it the church, be it Jesus, be it, um, you know, something important that has basically tethered you to God that always jerks you back before you actually hit the pavement. And that person who has been through this kind of experience can tell you that even on earth, living in the presence of God, subordinating your will to God's will, brings far greater happiness than any of the temporary pleasures that ultimately led you toward the crusher in the first place. You know, as you drifted bit by bit away from God, away from grace, away from what is good, and wandered just blindly toward annihilation almost like a cartoon character picking up one piece of candy after another, only just looking down, never looking up, only looking down, continuing to pick up piece after piece after piece of candy, enjoying the pleasure that this brought, until, eventually, you walk into the trap, and Satan drops an anvil on your head. Some people can make it back crawling back to God, bleeding with severe brain damage. And it will be a long healing process. But some others don't make it back. And I think those who don't make it back are the people being described in this surah. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.
Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.